Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, what happens to us when we die? What goes on in the grave? What is death like? I think you have to admit all of these are rather unsettling questions. It's not nice to ask them. It's not nice to think about them, much less to discuss them or try to understand them. But nevertheless, they are part of life and they cannot be avoided forever. Yes, and the writer of Ecclesiastes would agree. In chapter 9 of his book, he describes a destiny which is common to us all. He speaks about death, our death. And he says some noteworthy things about death and dying. For one, he says that anyone who is among the living has hope. And then he adds for good measure, even a dead or a live dog is better than a dead lion. You know, you may be a lion and you may be very proud, or you may be a dog and very ashamed, but in the end, you're better off being a live dog than a dead, important lion. And he also adds, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Wow, those are rather brutal, poetic, but true words. And they're also kind of, I would think, confusing words. For some think that what the writer is here doing is he is contrasting this life with the afterlife. And, and from these few words of Ecclesiastes, they rush to conclude that there is, you see, no life after death, or there is no conscious existence after death. But that's not what the writer is saying. The contrast he is describing is not between this life and the afterlife, but it's between life and death, living and dying. But then as life and death, living and dying, viewed from the perspective of this life, of what we know, of what we experience. And as far as he can see, he says, life, life is all about hope. You know, you'd rather be a, a live dog than a dead lion, right? But death, on the other hand, it's the end of the sunshine, the end of all reward, of all memory, of all pleasure. The living know that they will die, but what do the dead know? As far as we know, as we can see, they know nothing. Now, at the same time, we may know something about life, but what do we know about death? And in view of that, the writer urges his readers to enjoy this life and what it has to offer. He says, enjoy your food while you can and your wine and be happy and celebrate and enjoy life with the wife whom you love. So Ecclesiastes is not a contrast between this life and the life to come. It's also not a contrast between doing something and doing nothing. 
You come to verse 10, which says, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. And here, too, some people draw the hasty conclusion that in this life we work, but in the life to come we don't do anything. We're nothing, and we do nothing. But, you know, that, too, is an incorrect conclusion. For the contrast, again, is not between being busy here in this life and doing nothing in the life to come. The contrast is between what happens here and now and what happens in the grave, in the casket, in the earth. And as far as we know, as far as we can see, as far as we can understand, nothing happens in the grave. There's no action in the casket. So the contrasts here are between life and death, life and the grave. This is not about the afterlife at all. You have to understand that. Don't try to build a theology of the afterlife on these words of Ecclesiastes 9. Because you see the afterlife, the life to come, the life beyond the grave, is quite different. And we see that well as well. We see that especially and particularly in our Lord Jesus Christ. He dies, this morning we heard, he suffers, rejected, is dies, killed, and he rises again. And then he ascends. And after he does that, does that mean he's now doing nothing? No, he continues to do things. He continues to know things. His work goes on. And so I'd like to preach to you this afternoon on the theme, the ascended Christ is busy, really busy in heaven. Or in other words, he's not unemployed. And we shall see he defends us, he assures us, and he helps us. Well, beloved, no sooner does Lord's Day 18 of the Heidelberg Catechism open and we are reminded according to Scripture that Christ did not go into heaven to do nothing. Many people in the past and some people today assume that in heaven we have reached the place of perfect rest and absolute retirement. You know, in this life, there's no absolute retirement, no matter what your status. People always find something for you to do, even if it's doing it for nothing. But they say, heaven, absolute retirement. Well, people also have convinced themselves as a result of mushy poetry and wrong-headed theology that in heaven, nothing much at all happens. All is quiet, all is peaceful, all is tranquil. The saints lounge on pillowy clouds. And the angels fly here and there, or else they're busy making delicious Philadelphia cream cheese dessert. And only soothing sounds are heard. Now, of course, it's not unbiblical to connect heaven with an absence of suffering, pain, sorrow, and tumult. 
But from there, don't jump to the conclusion that in heaven nothing happens or that heaven is devoid of activity, drama, or excitement. Why, a very close look at the answer 46 throws cold water on that idea right away. It says that Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up from earth into heaven, that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Notice that according to these words, Christ's presence in heaven is beneficial. He's up to something there. He, he's doing something good there, and he's doing it for us. And notice as well that his presence there is described as a time of preparation. He's getting ready to return. So he's very much active there. He's very much in the preparation business there. But in what way is he active, you might ask? Well, look at the opening words of answer 49. First, he is our advocate in heaven before his Father. That's another way of saying that Christ went up to heaven, and what he did there is he established a law firm. Because the word advocate means the same as lawyer, attorney, defender, counselor. In a sense, you can say, Christ is practicing law in heaven. Of course, you may wonder where that strange idea comes from. I remember taking a course oh, 30 years ago, a long time, at Regent College, and there was a famous Australian conservative New Testament theologian by the name of Leon Morris. And in the course he was teaching, Leon Morris stressed that when Christ ascended into heaven, he went there and... He is as good as unemployed in heaven. All he's doing there, Morris said, is resting on his laurels, his new one triumph. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's doing nothing more than relaxing and enjoying himself and savoring the moment. But I would say to you, that's not really true with all respect to Mr. Morris. Read, for example, Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Look at what it says. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Or what about 1 John chapter 2, verse 1? My dear children, I write to you this so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What those portions of Scripture tell us, and there are more, that Jesus Christ is in heaven, and what he's doing there is he's interceding for us. He is speaking for us, defending us. He's not sitting at the right hand of the Father, resting and relaxing. No, he's pleading our case. He's stepping up to the plate for us. He is going to bat for us. And you know, is that not great news? Is that not something for you and I to celebrate? Don't we all at times need a lawyer? Probably. But you know, especially in heaven, we all need a lawyer. Of course, if you and I, if we were perfect people, we wouldn't need one. But who of us can claim to be that? 
Who of us can claim that we always think right, speak right, and act right? Who of us can claim to be perfect law keepers? Surely none of us can. We all need someone to plead our case before the throne of God. We need someone who addresses the fact that what we should do, we don't do, and what we do, we shouldn't do. We need help, lots of help. Because our days are so often filled with angry words and hateful actions and dirty thoughts and evil deeds. How often do we not offend God's holiness and ignore His law? For the truth of the matter is that this defending that we need is not something easy and is not something that comes automatically either. When Christ stands up and pleads our case, he he doesn't exactly have a pool of great character witnesses that he can call upon to testify for us. And he can't glibly point to extenuating circumstances, nor can he plead temporary insanity. No, defending us takes a lot more. It takes a special kind of defense. It requires a lawyer who also acts as our substitute. For the fact of the matter is that all of us who are arraigned before the throne of God are guilty. We are all as guilty as sin. We have no excuse, no defense. And the only thing that we have in our favor is a a great lawyer who, who turns to God, the judge, and who says, I am speaking here on behalf of all these people whom you have given me. I've died for them. I've paid for them. I've washed away their sins with my blood. I have done for them what they could never do for themselves. I am the righteous one. And I am their righteous one. 1 John 2 goes on to say, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sin of the whole world. More accurately, John says he is the propitiation for our sins, meaning that he is the sacrifice who bears God's wrath and turns it into favor. Our favor. So I would say to you, beloved, be astounded that Christ today is lawyering in heaven for you. And be even more astounded that he does this on the basis of his own life and sacrifice. He is defending us who have no defense. And he is doing it with the one and only defense that holds any water. Himself. His perfect life. His sinless work. His righteous deeds. And so Christ is busy in heaven defending us. But that's not all. Scripture says he's also busy in heaven and from heaven assuring us. Now what's that all about, you might ask? Well, you can say it's all about our insecurity. For sin not only stains and pollutes, it also makes us and causes us at times to doubt 
As a matter of fact, at times we doubt almost everything that life has to offer. Of course, we doubt our politicians and our bankers. We doubt our teachers too at times and our pastors as well. We doubt our parents and at times our children. The opposite of doubt is what's called trust. But that too is a problem. For we who doubt everything and everyone sometimes have a hard time trusting anyone or anything. By nature, we're not just sinful, we also tend to be cynical. Yes, and sad to say that that same kind of attitude extends often to the promises of God, to the little promises as well as to the big promises. It extends to His promise to take care of us. It extends to His promise even to forgive us and to resurrect us. At times, we doubt. You know, in the previous Lord's Day, Lord's Day 17, we dealt with the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, you know, that's not all. We also dealt with the fallout from that resurrection, and that the catechism insists that His resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. So it's saying, seeing that Christ has defeated the last enemy, we shall too. Seeing that Christ arose from the dead, we shall arise from the dead. Seeing that Christ went up to glory, we will receive glory too. You know what huge promises the gospel gives us? We have these great, glorious, stimulating injections of hope in the midst of this broken life. But do we always believe them? Embrace them? Do we really? We have our struggles, and God knows that. And that's why, you know, God has given us Jesus Christ, His unique person. For who is this lawyer in heaven? What is he, if I ask the question, what does he look like? Well, Scripture says He looks like us. Because when He defends us in heaven by the throne of God or in front of the throne of God, He does so as someone who is clothed, Scripture says, with our flesh and blood, with our humanness, with our humanity. He's up there for us as one of us. And because He's up there, Scripture says, believe it or not, we're there too. Paul writes, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now you ask yourself, when did Christ do that? When were we raised with Christ? When were we in heaven with Christ? When were we ever seated with Christ? Physically and materially, we have always been down here, down below. But Scripture says because Christ is there, we are there. Spiritually, symbolically, we are there. Our flesh, Scripture says, in Christ, is in heaven. And that means we're there already. You know, all of that functions as a pledge, as a promise, as a commitment. If Christ can take 
and wants to take and does take our flesh and blood into heaven, glorified though it may be, it surely means that we shall one day come there too. And there's no reason to doubt that. After all, Christ is our head, the head of the body. And what's a body without a head? What's a head without a body? You see, Christ's ascension is just one more promise. Where He is, is where we shall be. What He receives is what we shall receive. We shouldn't doubt. We should look on high, where Christ is, seated as God and man in the presence of the Father. Well, beloved, so far then we see how, how God tries to defend us, assure us, but there's also something else. He helps us. But the help that he gives us is, of course, not human help, because in the interim we need that help. We're not there yet. We're not where Christ is. There is this interim, this time in between, in which we need all kinds of assistance. And this assistance, this help, it comes, Scripture says, from the Holy Spirit. And you know, that kind of help is not, by the way, to be discounted or minimized or mocked. And I tell you that because you have to only look at the church before and after the coming of the Holy Spirit. Before the Spirit comes, what does the church look like, the church of Jesus Christ? Well, the church of Jesus Christ is a confused community. It's made up of weak-kneed Nellies. It's devoid of understanding, courage, vision, hope, commitment. But then He comes. The Spirit comes. And look at what happens. It's as if you flip a switch. Ignorance vanishes. Fear of persecution disappears. Being arraigned before the authorities doesn't intimidate anyone. Threats do not dissolve them. Death doesn't deter them. Nothing. Absolutely nothing hinders them. The march is on. The march of the kingdom of God. Yes, and all of that do, is due, beloved, to one thing. And that's to the coming down of the Spirit at Pentecost. Before it happens, Christ says it will and it must. He tells his followers, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. You know, the Father has given them one counselor already in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is the counselor who saves. But now the Father is asked for the other counselor. Send him as well. And that's the counselor who keeps. Who keeps the believers on the road of salvation forever. And that's what the Spirit did then. And that's what the Spirit is still doing today. The Spirit comes even today with all kinds of gifts. You know, the time of the early church, he came with those special gifts of tongues and miracles and miraculous powers. And after that, he comes with those lasting gifts of teaching and serving, encouraging, contributing, leadership and mercy. And he still comes with daily gifts of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, and all the rest. 
See, beloved, the Spirit is at work, and how rich and how spiritually affluent we are. If the church thought that the departure of Jesus Christ would mean poverty, it couldn't have been more mistaken. For loaded down with the gifts of the Spirit, what is it that happens? What happens to the church endowed with the Spirit? Well, you'll notice in the book of Acts, the church goes out into the world. Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Nation after nation is confronted with the gospel and surrenders to the gospel. And the same, I would remind you, is still going on in many places today, whether in Africa, Asia, or Latin America. Where is the church growing? In strange places like Iran, Iraq. Where is the church growing? Where, where people bear witness in the power of the Spirit and to continue to fix their eyes on the things that are above. And where is the church shrinking and shriveling? Where people are fixing their eyes on the things that are below. That's where the church is dying. When we're too preoccupied with our own agendas and we forget the agenda of God. And so, beloved, need more be said? You and I may be living in a world, in a country, that's more and more fixing its eyes on the lower things. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we need to go along with it. If there is still hope for Canada and the United States and Europe, it comes from those who rely on the spirit of the word and the word of the spirit. It comes to those whose eyes are fixed and focused on Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God. May Christ be our vision and fill our vision. May our ascended Lord and Savior fill us with his presence and his power. He's busy today. Yes, he's wonderfully busy for us, you and me. And may that spur us on and make that make us busy for him, for the glory of his name, for the building of his church, for the coming of his kingdom. Amen.